Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey friends, Professor Greg Jackson here, and today I have a special treat, a bonus two back-to-back episodes from the podcast History Daily, which is exactly what it sounds like, daily historical stories. Every weekday, host Lindsey Graham takes you back in time to explore a momentous moment that happened on that very same day in history. And yes, this is the podcaster, Lindsey Graham. You might know him from American Scandal, American History Tellers, or if I may be so bold, HTDS. Lindsay and his team are the ones behind the brilliant sound design here on History That Doesn't Suck. You can expect the same quality music and sound effects that we have here at HTDS on History Daily. So let's get a taste. Here are two episodes with tales of adventure and exploration. The first flight of the Wright brothers and the race to the South Pole. And as you listen, be sure to subscribe to History Daily on your podcast server of choice. It's December 14, 1903. On a windswept beach a few miles outside the town of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, a man with a thick black mustache and keen, inquisitive eyes pokes his head out of his tent and looks around, frowning. A moment later, a second head emerges, similar in appearance to the first, but balding and clean-shaven. The two men squint up at the sky, checking for rain clouds. Then they glance across at a winged, wooden contraption sitting outside their tent. Today, we would recognize the contraption as a rudimentary airplane. But on this day, December 14, 1903, the word airplane does not yet exist. Instead, the two men simply call their invention the Wright Flyer. But whether or not it will fly remains to be seen. If it does, it will be the first piloted, engine-powered airplane flight in history. And its inventors, Orville and Wilbur Wright, two bicycle mechanics from Ohio, will become the unlikeliest of celebrities. With the help of three local Coast Guardsmen, the Wright brothers carry their machine to the foot of a nearby sand dune known as Kill Devil Hill. They flip a coin to decide who will make the first attempt. Wilbur, the bald one, wins the toss. He climbs into the cockpit and signals to his brother he's ready. Orville pulls the propellers and the motors sputter to life. The machine rattles down the launching rail, picking up speed until, with a final lurch, it rises up into the air. But then immediately, it stalls. The engine cuts out, and the Wright Flyer crashes down to Earth. The Wright brothers' first attempt at powered flight has failed. Now they must repair their broken machine. The two brothers figure repairs will take about three days, meaning that the earliest their second attempt can be made is December 17, 1903. And there's still no knowing who will by then win the race to the skies and who will be forgotten. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily.
History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 17th, the first flight of the Wright brothers. It's May 6th, 1896, seven years before the crash of the Wright Flyer. On a spring afternoon in the village of Quantico, Virginia, a houseboat floats on the serene waters of the Potomac River. Sitting on deck is a stern-looking elderly man in a dark three-piece suit. His name is Dr. Samuel Pierre Point Langley. He is the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution and the man who many believe will someday invent piloted engine-powered flight. For the last 10 years, this has been Langley's sole obsession. The former Harvard astrophysicist rose to prominence during the 1870s and 80s, establishing the unit for measuring the sun's radiation that still bears his name, the Langley. But by the mid-1880s, Langley felt intellectually unsatisfied and hungry for a new challenge. He turned his attention to a lifelong interest in a subject that had yet to be deemed respectable by the wider scientific community, aviation. During the late 19th century, the idea of human flight caught the imaginations of inventors around the world, but it would take a while for the new field of aeronautics to be accepted as something worthy of serious academic study. Early aviators were written off as cranks and crackpots. Because of this, Langley knew he had to proceed with caution and carry out his experiments privately. His reputation was at stake. But there were others like him, legitimate scientists and engineers who based their aeronautical experimentation on meticulous calculations, drawing on the research of early pioneers like Leonardo da Vinci and Galileo. This burgeoning aviation community included Langley and Augustus Herring in the United States, Lawrence Hargrave in Australia, Louis-Pierre Mouillard in France, and Otto Lilienthal in Germany. The focal point of the community was a French-American engineer named Octave Chanut, who encouraged open communication between inventors. But out of all of them, Langley made the greatest strides toward the holy grail of aeronautics, piloted, engine-powered flight. And yet, for all his progress, Langley was still conducting his experiments in secret, fearing that if found out, his peers would ostracize him from the scientific community. Then in 1887, something happened that guaranteed Langley's place within the academic establishment. He was offered the role of secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, the most prestigious scientific position in the country. With this as his title, Langley was free to carry out his experiments at will. He assembled a team devoted solely to the invention of powered flight. Langley's workers found him domineering and obstinate, often dismissive of other people's ideas. But by May 1896, Langley had constructed a non-piloted flying machine, a four-winged wooden construction powered by a steam engine. He called it Aerodrome No. 5, and today is its first test flight. Langley fidgets nervously as his assistants position the launching rail aboard a houseboat on the Potomac River. The last four prototypes of the aerodrome all crashed just seconds after takeoff. If number five is a failure too, Langley's aviation career might as well be finished. Langley grips the railings of the boat as the aerodrome engines fire up. Observing the launch alongside him is the inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell. Langley hopes to achieve the same level of renown as his esteemed friend. And to his elation, the aerodrome number five is a success, staying aloft for one minute and 20 seconds before gracefully landing on the riverbank. It's a moment of victory for Langley. He receives a combined $70,000 grant from the War Department and the Smithsonian to develop a piloted version of the aerodrome. So Langley spends the next six years working on this machine. 
each year that passes, he feels like he's getting closer to securing his place in the history books. And by October 7th, 1903, the piloted airdrome is ready for its first test flight. But the machine barely makes it off the launching rail before it crashes into the Potomac River. A month later, on December 8th, a second attempt also fails. Langley will never make a third. In a few days, he will receive word from Octave Chanut, his fellow inventor, that somebody has beaten him to it. A stunned Langley will assume it's one of his rivals, Augustus Herring, perhaps, or Lawrence Hargrave. But Chanute will inform Langley that actually, in the race to the skies, he has been beaten by a pair of bicycle mechanics, two brothers without a high school diploma between them, named Wilbur and Orville Wright. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, oh, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. <laughs> It's 1878 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 25 years before Samuel Langley's piloted aerodrome crashes into the Potomac River. Milton Wright, a Protestant bishop, arrives home one day with a toy helicopter. The toy is made of paper and cork with a rotor powered by a twisted rubber band. Milton bought the 50-cent toy as a gift for his sons, 11-year-old Wilbur and 6-year-old Orville. From a young age, Wilbur and Orville Wright started exhibiting an intense curiosity about the world around them. Although there are three other siblings, and Wilbur is four years older than Orville, these two brothers have an especially close bond. Milton and his wife Susan nurture the boys' inquisitive nature, encouraging them to read widely and take responsibility for their own education. On that afternoon in 1878, Orville and Wilbur play with the toy helicopter for hours. The experience will spark a passionate interest in aviation. But throughout the brothers' childhood and adolescence, that's all it will remain an interest. By the time he's 18, Wilbur, the more academically brilliant of the pair, intends to go to Yale to become a minister. And he would have done so had a freak sporting accident not changed the course of his life. It's the winter of 1885. The Wright family has relocated to Dayton, Ohio. Wilbur plays hockey on a frozen pond with some friends when he's struck in the face by a hockey stick. He suffers a broken jaw and endures months of terrible pain. But the worst injuries are psychological. He plunges into a deep depression and decides not to attend Yale. He withdraws and becomes a recluse. 
Wilbur's once bright future has been abruptly extinguished, and it will take nearly eight years to recover from his injuries. During this time, when not providing care for his dying mother, Wilbur reads voraciously. He consumes every book about aerodynamics he can get his hands on. He analyzes complex aeronautical data, working out precise equations that might enable humans to fly. By the time he emerges from his period of isolation, Wilbur's fascination with aviation has become an obsession. But there's still the matter of making a living. So in 1892, Wilbur and Orville, who also dropped out of high school, opens a bicycle shop in Dayton. There, the brothers design, manufacture, and sell bicycles, using the proceeds to fund their budding flight experiments, all the while closely monitoring the latest developments in aeronautics. Their lives become consumed by their ambition. Of the two brothers, Orville is the more brilliant engineer, but Wilbur is the visionary genius and the driving force behind their work. But despite their abilities, the odds are stacked against the Wright brothers. They have no formal qualifications and are almost entirely self-taught. Try as they might, they cannot gain access to the exclusive community of aeronautical inventors, men like Dr. Samuel Langley. In 1899, Wilbur writes a letter to the Smithsonian, headed by Langley. Dear Sirs, I have some pet theories as to the proper construction of a flying machine. I wish to avail myself of all that is already known and then, if possible, help the future worker who will attain final success. The letter doesn't do much for Wilbur. Langley is busy developing his aerodrome. But later that year, on his own, Wilbur makes a significant discovery, one that allows the Wright brothers to overtake Langley in the race to the skies. One day, while fiddling with a scrap of rubber in the workshop, Wilbur discovers the principle of wing warping, a system of pulleys that twist the edges of wings, mimicking the way birds keep balance in flight. It turns out to be a major breakthrough, and the Wright brothers make good use of the discovery as they assemble their earliest gliders. Learning from the mistakes of their contemporaries, like Otto Lilienthal, who crashed and died in 1896, the brothers realize that control is the fundamental issue. To stay aloft, the machines require built-in steering and an ability to adjust the wings and maintain equilibrium. The brothers also need a suitable place to test their gliders. They settle on the coast of North Carolina, where the dunes outside the town of Kitty Hawk will provide a consistent breeze and soft, sandy landings. Kitty Hawk is also remote. There, they will be able to carry out their experiments away from the prying eyes of the press. The Wright brothers spend the next three years traveling between Dayton, Ohio, and Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Slowly, methodically, they develop their gliders. They experiment with tilt, lift, and thrust. They adjust the curvature of the wings and design a movable rudder for steering. Eventually, they add a diesel engine, built by Charlie Taylor, the mechanic from their bicycle shop. By 1903, they have built the Wright Flyer, a meticulously designed masterpiece of engineering. But when the first test flight ends in calamity on December 14th, Orville and Wilbur must contend with the possibility they've gotten something wrong. With the weather worsening and rival aviators closing in on the prize, there isn't time for a radical rethink. Instead, everything comes down to the next test flight. It's December 17, 1903, the day of the second test flight. Wilbur and Orville emerge from their tent to a bitterly cold winter's morning. A freezing headwind whips in from the northeast and stings the brothers' faces. They look ruefully at one another. Conditions are even worse than they were before, but they don't have much choice. It has to be today. 
they don't want someone else to be first. Once again, they enlist the help of some local Coast Guardsmen, as well as a 16-year-old local boy who happens to be walking down the beach that morning. Together, they drag the right flyer into position at the foot of Kill Devil Hill. Wilbur went last time, so now it's Orwell's turn. He climbs into the cockpit and checks his controls. Everything's in order. It's now or never. Wilbur pulls the propellers. The motor starts running. Orville stares directly into the icy wind and begins moving down the launching rail. The sand beneath him becomes a blur as the plane accelerates, the sound of rattling wood filling his ears, until suddenly the plane lifts off the rail and the rattling disappears. It's only air between him and the ground now. For 15 feet, 30 feet, 50 feet, the plane travels 100 feet in total, airborne for 12 whole seconds before coming to land under the control of its pilot. The onlookers cheer, and for the first time in history, a machine has taken off from flat ground and sustained controlled flight through the air. The 16-year-old boy will run straight into the nearby village, spreading news of the groundbreaking achievement. Wilbur and Orville Wright will become celebrities, but nobody, not even the Wright brothers themselves, could have predicted how radically their invention would transform human existence. From international travel to modern warfare to space exploration, the age of aviation changed the way we live, and it all began on that windswept beach in North Carolina on December 17, 1903. It's October 21, 1911, in Antarctica. Roald Emmonson, a Norwegian explorer, rides on a two-man sled that cuts its way through snowy white terrain. Dogs strain to pull Emmonson and his fellow explorer along, and he struggles to see through the thick fog of snow. As Emmonson looks back over his shoulder, he can barely make out the three sleds that follow behind. Two days earlier, Amundsen and a small group of explorers climbed on board four different sleds and departed from their base camp near the Antarctic coast. They set out to become the first men to reach the South Pole, one of the few remaining undiscovered regions on Earth. Amundsen intends to be the first man there and plant the flag for Norway. But he knows that somewhere out here in the Antarctic wasteland, traveling via a different route, there is a rival expedition led by Captain Scott of Great Britain Amundsen is desperate to beat Scott in this race. Just then, Amundsen hears a thump as his sled flies over a patch of smooth, icy ground. Amundsen, a veteran explorer, knows exactly what this sound means. The ground he is traveling over is hollow. He barely has time to react before it begins to crack. Amundsen and his companion leap from the sled just as it plunges through the ice into a huge crevasse concealed below the surface. As he climbs to his feet and catches his breath, Amundsen knows he is lucky to be alive. But he also knows there is no time to delay. He and his crew must quickly retrieve the sled and its vital supplies to continue their journey. Amundsen hopes this near-death delay won't cost him the victory he's worked so hard to achieve. Because in less than two months' time, on December 14, 1911, one of these two expeditions will beat the other to the South Pole. The winner will return to their country in glory. The loser will not just fail in their attempt, but meet a tragic end. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily.
History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 14th, 1911, the race to the South Pole. It's early December 1909 at the Royal Geographical Society in Savile Row, London, two years before a flag is planted at the South Pole. Captain Robert Falcon Scott, the famous explorer, drinks a brandy with a group of friends and supporters in a high-ceilinged room whose walls are covered with maps of the world. Members of the Geographical Society's staff hang brightly colored baubles from a Christmas tree in the corner of the room as Scott quietly outlines his plan to take another expedition to Antarctica. As Scott lays out his vision, his mind floats back to how he first became involved with Antarctic exploration ten years earlier. After a chance encounter with the then-president of the Geographical Society, Sir Clements Markham, the 31-year-old Royal Navy officer was placed in full command of the British National Antarctic Expedition, more commonly known after the name of its ship, the Discovery. Scott was told that the Discovery's goals were scientific and geographical. On the expedition, Scott and his Discovery explored previously unmapped areas of the Antarctic continent and made thorough studies of its oceans, marine life, and weather conditions. He charted new lands and climbed mountains, calculating their heights and positions. His crew sledded over newly discovered plateaus, collecting thousands of biological specimens to be brought home for museums. He even discovered a new colony of emperor penguins. And when he returned to Britain, Scott received a hero's welcome and a cluster of medals. Yet tonight, as he sips his brandy with friends, Scott knows that the discovery failed in the one objective that really matters. Scott wants Britain to become the first country to plant a flag at the South Pole and thereby claim the right to name the area after the current monarch, King Edward VII. His discovery expedition managed to reach 858 kilometers away from the pole, breaking Norway's record at the time. But on his next expedition, Scott wants to go the full distance and to arrive in the southernmost part of the world before anyone else. To this end, he's already secured a strong ex-whaling ship called the Terra Nova, as well as financial backing for the expedition. He's publicly declared that the Terra Nova expedition will reach the South Pole and secure for the British Empire the honor of the achievement. When Scott finishes laying out his plan, one of his companions asks him about potential rival expeditions, especially Roald Amundsen of Norway. Scott knows Amundsen is a formidable explorer. Years ago, he became the first man to successfully navigate Canada's Northwest Passage, a tempestuous stretch of sea between the Atlantic and the Pacific. But when Scott's companion asks if Amundsen might beat him to the South Pole, Scott waves the concern away as he swirls his brandy. Amundsen is fixed on reaching the North Pole, Scott assures his companions. The path to the South Pole is clear for the British. It's September 9th, 1910, on the Portuguese island of Madeira in the Atlantic Ocean. Roald Amundsen's ship, the Fram, has been docked here for three days as he and his crew prepare for an arduous journey. Most of the crew believe Amundsen intends to reach the North Pole, as Scott did. But today, Amundsen makes an announcement that takes them all by surprise. This expedition will be heading south. According to recent newspaper reports, two separate American expeditions have already made it to the North Pole. But the South Pole remains unclaimed for now. Amundsen tells his crew that the British have launched an expedition to the South Pole led by Captain Robert Falcon Scott. But Amundsen wants to beat Scott to it. 
He asks each crew member if they're willing to make the journey south instead of north, and each one replies with a quick and enthusiastic yes. But just before the Fromm leaves Madeira, Amundsen sends a telegram to Scott, who he knows will be departing soon. It reads simply, Beg to inform you, Fromm proceeding to Antarctica. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's January 14th, 1911, in the Bay of Wales on the Antarctic coast, exactly one month before the first man reaches the South Pole. Roald Amundsen stands on the deck of the Fram and looks over the natural ice harbor. This is where he has decided his ship will remain while he makes the long, arduous journey to the Pole. His breath freezes in the air as he surveys the unspoiled continent he and his men have traveled to. Some of his men remark on the large number of whales nearby, but Amundsen isn't interested. His focus is on one thing only, getting to the South Pole before Scott. Amundsen is not shocked by the freezing temperatures. He prides himself on his preparation. When he traveled across the Northwest Passage, he encountered native Inuit people and learned a lot from them about surviving in hostile conditions. Inspired by their outfits, his crew have all clothes made from wolf and reindeer skins. Still, Amundsen knows it would be extremely unwise to set off towards the South Pole as the Antarctic winter begins in April. So his priority for now is hibernation. He sets about establishing a base camp two miles south from the ship. They call it Framheim, meaning home for Fram, and it takes his 19-man crew a week to build a sturdy hut for them to wait out the winter. But then, on the morning of February 3, 1911, Amundsen is astonished when he learns that Scott's Terra Nova ship has sailed into the same harbor where their ship is docked. 
He had not expected the British to choose the same coastal port, but is glad to have his chance to shake hands with Captain Scott. But when the six Terranova crewmen disembark, he finds that they are led by a young British officer named Victor Campbell, not Scott. Campbell tells Amundsen that he is using the ship to carry out scientific research on the local area. Scott and the rest of his crew have already made camp further north. When Amundsen learns of Scott's precise location, he smiles inwardly. Scott is positioned further away from the pole by 70 miles. Once winter clears, Amundsen will have a head start. But Amundsen is concerned when he learns that Scott's party is employing motorized sleds. He worries that this innovation could give Scott the upper hand in the race. Months later, on October 19, 1911, Amundsen is eager to set off for the pole. He's tormented by the idea that Scott's party might have already left their camp. With those motorized sleds, Scott could already be in the lead. A month earlier, Amundsen tried to set off with a small crew when the conditions were still harsh. But after a few days of traveling through temperatures of minus 69 degrees Fahrenheit, Amundsen gave up and returned to Framheim. But now the long Antarctic winter, which lasts from April to October, is finally over. Amundsen is ready. He travels light with just four other crewmen and manages to cover 28 kilometers per day, a pace he's happy with. But Amundsen knows that this is the easy part of the journey. Soon he will come upon the Trans-Antarctic Mountains, an intimidating range Scott has already experienced as part of his earlier discovery expedition. But the only way forward is up and through these mountains. And after three days of slogging through the thick, soft snow, Amundsen, his men, and dogs climb a distance of 56 kilometers until they reach the glacier summit. Atop the great height of the polar plateau, Amundsen knows they have overcome the biggest physical obstacle that lies between them and victory. But the journey here has been long, and they are running out of food. So with a heavy heart, Amundsen gives a ruthless order. Of the 45 remaining dogs, he commands that 27 be shot so that they can be skinned and cooked. Amundsen later writes in his memoirs that we called the place the butcher's shop. There was sadness and depression in the air. We had grown so fond of our dogs. As Amundsen and his men enter the final stage of their journey, he still has no idea if Scott is far ahead or lagging behind. But Amundsen is determined to be the first, to win the honor of naming the pole after his nation's monarch and to plant his flag victorious. It's December 14, 1911, at the South Pole. As the Antarctic sun smiles down, Roald Amundsen and his four comrades lay their hands on the Norwegian flagpost. Triumphant Amundsen declares, Thus we plant thee, beloved flag, at the South Pole, and give to the plain on which it lies the name of King Haakon VII's Plateau. Once their ceremony is done, on Amundsen's orders, his men establish the exact position of the pole and leave clear indicators so no one can dispute their victory. Then the Norwegians solemnly say farewell to the site and begin the long journey home. Over a month later, on January 17, 1912, Scott and his men arrive at the South Pole and find the Norwegian flag flying proudly before them. Scott is filled with bitter disappointment. He curses himself for the disastrous decisions he made on the way here, including those motorized sleds that broke down only a short time into their march south. He also regrets bringing along Siberian ponies. They couldn't cope with the violent weather conditions, 
and had to be shot, leaving Scott and his men to manhole their sleds most of the way. The Norwegian flag confirms to Scott that Amundsen's expedition was simply better prepared. But for the Terra Nova crew, the disaster is just beginning. On their return march from the pole, Scott and the rest of his party all perish due to a combination of freezing cold and starvation. When word gets out of Scott's death, many British citizens feel a deep sadness for a man they see as a tragic hero. His supporters argue that Amundsen cheated Scott by announcing his expedition at the last minute. Scott, they claimed, was the better explorer. Amundsen simply got lucky. Later in his memoirs, thinking of this sentiment, Amundsen will reflect on his victory. He will write, I am sure some will say we had good luck, but what they call good luck, I call good planning. Roald Amundsen, his team, and good planning are the forces behind this historic day, December 14, 1911, when the first explorers reached the South Pole. Hope you enjoyed Lindsay's storytelling. I always do. Again, you can find History Daily on all the usual servers, Apple, Spotify, and so on. So do check it out and join me next time where I'd like to tell you a story. for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.